You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Surgery and in-hospital admission can be a source of significant worry. It can lead to eating difficulties, sleeping problems, depression, and somatic disorders, to name but a few. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, Professor of Surgery at the Chicago Medical School, and with me today is Dr. Marsha Greenleaf, Assistant Clinical Professor in the Department of Psychiatry and former Director of Training of Medical Hypnosis at Albert Einstein College of Medicine. She is also a health psychologist in New York. Today, we are discussing the process of pre-surgical and in-hospital self-hypnosis. Welcome, Dr. Greenleaf. Thank you. Certainly when a patient is in the hospital, whether it be post-surgery or for a medical condition, there are a lot of stresses. How can hypnosis help? Hypnosis can help because it's a way of making a connection with the patient. And I'll back up a little bit on that. When somebody is in the hospital, it almost it's like a psychic assault for them. There is a loss of a sense of being independent. They become socially isolated, and they may be facing loss of function. When they're in that state, it's very welcoming for the patient to have somebody show up with the focus on, I am here to help you learn a way to feel more comfortable, or I am here to help you regain some of your sense of control. And how do you do that? I usually do it that way. I sit down next to the patient, so I'm eye level rather than standing over the patient. And depending on how the consult has been called, they may have been told it's for hypnosis. They may have been told it's for a relaxation technique. It's easier if they've been told it's for hypnosis, and then I can say, Quite directly, hypnosis is a state that you can learn to go into on your own. And when you're in that hypnotic state, it's possible for you to create how you want to feel and act and be by what you hold in mind. Is there a difference if the patient is in pain from, let's say, a post-operative procedure or uncomfortable from their medical condition as to your success? Not really. It doesn't seem to matter how dramatic the problem is. So, for example, I can remember being called for a woman who was newly diagnosed with leukemia. She was about 28 years old, and she was screaming every time a nurse or a physician entered her room. Uh, another time, I was called for a woman with metastatic breast cancer who had become suicidal. And in both cases, I sat down with virtually the same approach. I'm here to try and help you feel more comfort. Then it depends on who the person is. And I use what sometimes is referred to as the Spiegel eye roll before I begin to use any kind of hypnosis. And I'm very matter-of-fact. I'm sitting bedside. I may put my hand on the patient's hand. And I'll say, before we start, I just want you to look up as high as you can. And as you continue to look up, let your eyelids close slowly, 
close, close, close. And while they're doing that, I check to see whether just, you know, how much of the sclera shows. Because if there's just a little bit, those are the people who are at the low end of hypnotizability. And if there's a lot, they're the people at the high end. At the low end, the person is going to need more of a cognitive, explanatory approach. At the high end, I'm going to know they're going to be able to dissociate. That means they're going to be able to go in their imagination and create something vivid that can be an antidote to the problem. Are patients usually receptive to your presence and intervention? More so bedside in the hospital than in any other setting. Why do you think that's so? Because they are so focused on their fear and their anxiety. I may be the first person who has come into their room who is not going to stick them with a needle, prod them with an instrument, or insist they go over their history, you know, for the umpteenth time. How do you gauge your own success in this endeavor? In the about 15 years that I was working directly bedside at Albert Einstein, and there are four hospitals, there are three patients who stand out as failures. And with the others, I found that some degree of success is always possible. The key is in how you create the goal so that I never say we're going to make your pain go entirely away. Instead, we're going to focus on having you feel a little bit more comfortable. I never say, you know, after this point, there will never be a problem. So, for example, with a woman who had appeared to be suicidal, she had a very high eye roll, and it dawned on me that she was probably dissociating. And I asked her, when you're having these suicidal thoughts, what state are you in? And she said, I don't know where I am. It's like I'm floating around in space. And I said, how do you feel when you come out of that state? And she said, I actually feel very calm and rested. It just scares me to go off that way. And I was able to say, you have spontaneously gone into a hypnotic trance. And I can teach you how to take charge of that. So what I did was I taught her to go into trance on purpose, go where she wanted to go, in a sense, turn on her own switch for where she wanted to be, and then come out of it at will. Now, with that, the success was getting her away from, and the staff who was terrified that she was really suicidal, but there was more work to do. And, you know, it required follow-up, first of all, to make sure she was able to initiate this on her own and follow through. But then as a psychologist, you know, I also wanted to help her talk through some of her fears of dying. If you have just joined us, you're listening to Reach MD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, and with me is Dr. Marsha Greenleaf, assistant clinical professor in the Department of Psychiatry and former director of training in medical hypnosis at Albert Einstein College of Medicine. We're discussing the use of self-hypnosis as a pre-surgical and in-hospital therapy. Dr. Greenleaf, do patients who have concomitant 
mental disorders such as depression have a problem with susceptibility and success with hypnosis? Yes, they can. With depression, depending on the nature of it, either due to medication or the state the person is in, they may not have the ribbon of concentration necessary to focus in trance and take in a new perspective. With something like uh, a history of schizophrenia, the person is unlikely. Schizophrenics are not hypnotizable. However, in the hospital, regardless of the comorbidity, it's important to help the staff be able to treat the patient successfully. In one instance, we had a patient who was schizophrenic, and the staff didn't know what to do to help him. He had broken some some bones in the cervical area of his spine. And in order for that to heal, they had metal tongs uh, attached to his the sides of his forehead and to the wall. But every time someone would come in to take care of him, he would become very agitated and move around and grimace. And this was very counterproductive to the healing. When I went in to examine him and I realized he was, you know, this was his history, instead of my having the patient initiate the hypnosis, I found out from the patient that he enjoyed having the sensation of cotton candy in his mouth and that when he thought of that, all the muscles relaxed. So instead of asking him to do that, I taught the staff that whenever they would enter the room, they would just say, now I would like you to imagine that your mouth is full of cotton candy and it's quite wonderful and you can enjoy that feeling while we're doing the care that you need. Can you use this treatment for hospice-type patients as well? Yes, and it would be amazing. I've never worked in a hospice situation I have worked with people who are terminally ill, and you can then help them go into the trance state. And depending on the person, there are people who have lived wonderful lives and then can use their minds like their own internal movie screen, and they can replay wonderful memories and remind themselves of how much they have been loved and the kinds of contributions they have made to people around them. And at the same time, I like to give them the suggestion, you know, if it's true, it always has to fit their history and be real for them. But to give a worthwhile person the suggestion that it's now time for them to receive the love that's around them, just as they have spent their life loving and caring for other people. Dr. Greenleaf, you spoke earlier about pre-surgical intervention. In patients in which you have intervened pre-surgically, do you continue intervening in their post-operative course as well? I usually don't have the luxury of being in touch with them. And I've been called to do the pre-operative intervention, sometimes two weeks before, sometimes the night before. At Einstein, sometimes it was the morning of. And I rarely had the luxury of the follow-through. So I would just, for example, we had a patient who was at the low end of hypnotizability but highly motivated. And the surgeons wouldn't touch him 
before I hypnotized him because he was claustrophobic and had a history of, of not wanting anything close to his face. They were afraid he was going to pull out the tubes. And I only worked with him prior to the surgery, but I found out from the staff afterwards that he had an extremely easy post-op course. And in their words, he was a piece of cake. I want to thank Dr. Marsha Greenleaf, who has been our guest, and we have been discussing the pre-surgical and in-hospital use of hypnosis. I'm Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, your host, and you have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.